Welcome to Command Shift Left, the podcast that helps you navigate the treacherous waters of the software development, ops, and security world while also diving into the hot current trends in the industry. Join myself, developer Philip, our co host or vice, hey audience, as we battle through hilarious real world stories, pro tips and hacks for navigating your way around developer security, learning about our Shift Left life, and life stories that have saved our ass. We have two awesome guests of us today, Francesco and Anand. Uh, it's fantastic to have you here. Thanks for taking time to join us on this podcast. And with uh, no particular order, let's uh, find out a little bit more about you guys. Uh, so maybe Anand, you can kick us off and tell us who you are and what you do. Yeah, so I'm Anand, uh, co-founder and CPO at Bitto, which is a game-changing productivity tool for developers. Uh, we started this about uh, two years ago and uh you know moved to using ai to you know help developers about a year back you know how the startup world is you know you can't pivot all the time and uh prior to that uh you know uh was fortunate to work with a good team uh and take a startup pragmatic which is in um you know programmatic advertising public in 2020 uh and then awesome sold iota <laughs> where i was the cpo to dnb uh, and prior to that, have been working in operating systems and high-performance computing with Veritas and Panther systems. Sounds amazing. Well, thanks for uh, joining us today. And uh, Francesco, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. First of all, thank you so much for pronouncing my name in the correct way. So, hi, I'm Francesco from Rome. I'm a developer advocate at the Dev, Docker captain, public speaker. I do stuff on mostly Twitter and YouTube. I also have uh, my own podcast, but it's it's great to be here. As a guest, uh, thank you so much, uh, Philip, for inviting me. And let's just get started. Thank you. Awesome. Uh, so, okay. So this is a this is a great time to start, and uh, let's kick off with our first fact for today. And that fact is by you, or so take it away. Thanks, Philip. So my fact for this episode is that the game Quake Three Arena contributed to the world one of the fastest estimation for functions to calculate an inverse square root. The calculation itself is in the form of subtraction from a magic number, that magic number which is uh, kind of well known today for uh, across the uh, uh, graphic space is 0x5f3759df. And I find this thing very, very exciting because it's a small thing that an engineer kind of plugs in into their code and it becomes a phenomenon. It becomes something that affects the entire development world it affects the entire gaming world in the way we think about uh, optimizing and, and building these uh, usually complex mathematical things. Uh, initially, when it was uh, uh, be, when it became known to the world, um, it was thought that it was just the engineer that came, came up with it on their own. By the way, the um, engineer that uh, uh, deserves the uh, credit here is um, uh, Greg Walsh, uh, who was part of a company that worked on Quake 3 Arena. Um, and initially it was thought that it was just an engineer that thought of this on their own, but actually it turns out that it was someone in academia that worked on something that he derived from their work. He derived the mathematical uh, shtick here. Uh, but s still, it's something that an engineer just plugged into code and something that looks very... Uh, outwardly and it changed the entire industry and i wonder 
how many of us as engineers, when we're writing code, when we uh, are working just on our projects, are how many things that were we doing? Maybe our world changing or game changing, and we're not even aware of it. We're just thinking, oh, this is just a short heuristic or a short shortcut that I'm taking here, but it has tremendous effects. And how many of these things are still hidden? Uh, they're just in your code that you wrote for some company, but it hasn't become public knowledge. So I wonder what you folks uh, uh, think about that. I'm actually, I'm actually wondering: was this, uh, was this an accident? Were I just trying to find a solution, and by accident they came up with a, with a, with a calculation that, that happens and is able to calculate the square root so fast, or uh, was it something that they deliberately planned and they knew the exact ex execution of it? So it, it, I wouldn't say it's an accident, but I do think there's serendipity here. So the engineer was working on building the graphic engine for this game, and he needed to get the right frame rate, the right uh, pace out of that engine. And, and uh, if you just write it naively, it, it doesn't work out of the box. So he had to apply some optimizations. And finding these hacks that are estimations and not the... Full calculations are the ways that, like these heuristics, essentially, yeah. are the ways that uh, uh, engineers often solve these problems. So instead of like putting in the perfect mathematical thing, you find like a magic number, essentially, that uh, get everything to work very, very efficiently. So it's it wasn't a, a, an accident; it was something that was intended. But I don't think when they were working on it, they were realizing how far spread the effect would be. Mm -hmm. This is interesting because, you know, if you basically use floating point numbers to do the same thing, it's going to consume a lot of amount of CPU power. So these kind of like hacks, although kind of like, you know, looks very simple once you know about them, mm -hmm. but, you know, have a big performance impact uh, when, you know, you're actually developing a game. You know, if you're playing quick, you don't want to kind of like buffer <laughs> when you're kind of turning around and shooting. So, yeah, pretty cool. So first of all, if you don't know what Quick 3 is, it means that you are young. So just check it out on Google. So, uh, so <laughs> welcome, you, you are young. It means that you are young. I was playing Quick 3 when I was in, the, in my high school, also won a tournament, but that's another story. I also made my, my thesis on the domain of Quick 3, so I came prepared. And Quick 3 is that the, basically, <laughs> it was the first game with a client-side architecture. It was the first uh, very well done uh, um, multiplayer game. It's uh, it's a huge case you study. So I don't know exactly about this uh, thing, but probably if you uh, implement this uh, improvement in the implementation on, a, on a, of course on the on the web on the internet, this I think one of the reasons why it was a success when we, when we had uh, way lesser bandwidth. Uh, and of course, way less powerful uh -huh. computers. So I think I didn't know about this fact, but I know about this client-side architecture. I think that now we give them for granted it's a client-side architecture. But I think in the nineties, it was absolutely not yeah. for Doom uh, Online. It was a mess because they was trying to elaborate everything on the local machine, and when you need to synchronize, it's a nightmare. So probably this uh, is one of the reasons why. When you go on a multiplayer scale and on the web, it's, uh, it can be game-changing. And I think the secret is to never give your code for granted. <laughs> so maybe, um, and this was uh, something that, uh, you know, when you have like some extra time as a developer to improve your code, and the managers think that you're just wasting time. But if you are really want to improve the code, 
that extra time, it's really meaningful. So this is a good case, and uh, now I know something else. Today I learned TIL. Okay. <laughs> Another cool thing about this is the comments that are... So later the code was open-sourced, and so we have the actual comments from the code itself, and it seems that the comments were added by another engineer reviewing the code and not the original engineer. And so there's a line where they, uh, you can, by the way, everyone can find this on Wikipedia if you want to see it. Uh, obviously, I can't give you the visual picture over the podcast, uh, but there's one line where they're casting the floating point into a long integer, and that uh, the comment for that line is evil floating point bit level hacking. And then the, <laughs> yes. and the yeah. second line uh, is where they where the actual magic number appears, and it's uh, there's a shift and then a subtraction from it, and the and the comment for that line is literally what the fuck question mark, <laughs> which which just means he he probably approved, <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs> um, I, in the end of the day, that code made it made it into the game. So yeah, it was yeah it was merged in. If if you can say merged, I don't think there was a. Uh, uh, Such a necessarily, thing. Yeah, the le- that level of so- source control, those concepts and we- source control that, that, that we have today. Um, but uh, yeah, it made it into the game and made it into a lot of other places as it become a, a common way to do that optimization. And I guess now in more places, they either have the this what the fuck or a reference to, I guess, this Wikipedia page explaining uh, what this actually is. And I'm, I really wonder, like, we're... Uh, we permit as a company, we do a lot of open source and a lot of our companies are doing open source today. But still, most of the code that is running the world, uh, maybe the fun foundations are open source, but uh, all the applications are top are still closed source. And I'm kind of, I'm curious to know how many more magic hacks, how many more techniques exist in code that we have today as humanity, but we're not sharing it. And if we did, we'd have like, maybe we'd be able to speed up AI a lot faster or uh, or do other things in a better way, or maybe just uh, um, have better ways of just managing your code as well. Maybe techniques for uh, making your code look prettier. Who knows? And uh, um, I wonder if like if there are people now in, in, in their companies as they're going about their code base, maybe there's some things that they can find there and, uh, and maybe decide to share with the world. Well, now, now that they have listened and hopefully will listen to this podcast, people will go diving in and trying to find these quirks. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll see more come out. Who knows? <laughs> cool. And I think this is a, a perfect time to move to our next fact. And our next fact belongs to you, Francesco. Take it away. Yeah, sure. By the way, I really love this format. And uh, so... In the past two years, I, I've been traveling a lot. I've been traveling to conferences. Uh, when I was invited to this podcast, uh, I was already uh, just back from Los Angeles. So I want to bring a fact that it's more like for, for in-person events, also because of the COVID. It is related to the fact that I started being more active on social media. So everything is related to this uh, fact, which I think that... Uh, so there are these conferences. Like I would like to, to discuss as a fact... Uh, if uh, you think uh, that uh, conferences like in-person events uh, are relevant for developers uh, or not, because uh, probably you know, in the 80s, uh, there were less say, in-person events. Now we're going more into three these, uh, or maybe I'm wrong, but uh, uh. I, I know that now there are more like these events, these conferences, they are a thing. So the fact, the fact is more like a question in my case. So 
do conferences, in your opinion, have an impact on the career of a developer or not? They are just to have fun and have some free food. And uh, yeah, I can start the packet. But go. Yeah, I actually, um, I actually found for myself once I started attending conferences that a lot of the talks that engineers come to make are kind of very exclusive content, as I'd like to call it. Uh, of course, they share the general principle in articles and blogs, but when you actually attend an in-person event, you get that special sprinkle of the extra magic that they have and they try and present to you. Uh, so the last time I, I've been at a conference and I actually sat in, uh, intrigued to listen what uh, these people actually uh, are, are there to, uh, and the kind of information they're there to, to, to share. And uh, I listened to things that, you know, I thought I knew, but it turned out that there is actually a lot of things that I've been introduced to that are just very fascinating and very kind of uh, groundbreaking in some way. So uh, in general, I, I would say that attending, uh, you know, events where you get to also meet and interact with other developers is, is super helpful. Um, but again, I'm here to hear your opinions as well. I think for first point, I think, yeah, events are definitely back now after COVID. I, uh, not too far back in the year, I went to KubeCon in, uh, in Amsterdam and it was a huge event. Like the previous KubeCon, there was still kind of in pandemic times, was pathetic. Like barely people came in, yeah. but this this event was like fully fledged, like uh, uh, to basically the scale that was pre-COVID. And so, yeah, I think for the for first point, yeah, physical events are back at least in, until the next pandemic hits. And uh, and I think there that's uh, that's like there's some good in it. In terms of if it's something that would boost a developer's career. I think um, it really depends on the developer and depends on the event. Not all the events are the same. So I think like going to reInvent, for example, and going to uh, a Node.js convention or going to KubeCon, very, very different. Like reInvent is much more of a party um, and and uh, and KubeCon is a lot more kind of professional in, in, uh, in relation to that. Like all of them have a bit of a party aspect to them because you need to draw people in. But it it changes between the different conferences, and I think it also depends on what you expect to get out of these conferences. If you're going to find like developer, like uh, Philip mentioned, if you're looking for like developers uh, doing special things or unique things, or maybe special subjects that you want to learn about, yeah, you can, you might find that. But these that's kind of like uh, finding diamonds in the rough. There will be a lot of garbage topics, and here and there you'll find some a couple of talks that will expand your horizons but i think there's like there's the low-hanging fruit like if you're a developer looking for a job these events often have uh job seeking opportunities like they're boards where the companies running the event are promoting uh hiring for themselves a lot of the bigger companies are in the event for hiring like you netflix is doing kubecon not for um selling uh people uh spinnaker or selling netflix subscriptions they're there to hire engineers. So it's the perfect place to reach out to them because they're it's the right people with the right mindset and they're excited to talk to you as an engineer, even if you're not uh, maybe at the right level for them. But you can strike a conversation and start growing the ball for working in that company. So I think as an engineer, if I was looking to work in a specific company or a specific type of company, I'd look at where that company was doing conferences and go talk to them there. And they'll probably be in the right mindset to 
kind of uh, uh, engage more. I agree with or, uh, you know, when I attend conferences, you know, that like, you know, I attend the other way around, like, you know, he's saying developers to find job. I'm looking for developers who are interesting. Um, and, you know, I'd say in-person events are, you know, in some cases good when you get the right set of folks because you can brainstorm and a lot of different ideas actually come from that. Like, you know, if you go to go, go for con or like, you know, uh, you know, Kubacon or other conferences, wherein, you know, you are interested in that area. Obviously, as Or mentioned, you know, you have to filter out which talks you're going to go to. And you have to basically be mindful of like, you know, what you're looking for if you're looking for hiring, right? And, you know, get the right mindset people uh, to talk to. And if you get that, then, you know, it's a great conference. Otherwise, you know, there are some conferences which are like party conferences wherein, you know, you go in, <laughs> you come back, you feel exhausted and you're like, I didn't achieve anything, right? Nothing new. Uh, or, or, you know, there are conferences wherein people are marketing solutions, yeah. wherein you are like, you know, I don't want another marketing or sales conference under the grab of developer conference. Uh, but in person, uh, like, you know, after pandemic, you know, what I figured out is when I attend conferences on, like, online or, you know, when you're talking to people online, yeah, you don't really have the same kind of connect that you have when you're in person, right? Uh, because, you know, you kind of, like, discuss more, you're more open, you're in there, right? So it's not like you lose your attention, you're checking your mobile phone or, you know, hey, there's an email that came up and I'm going to respond to it. You're there uh, physically and mentally. So I think, you know, in-person events are good, but, you know, I'd still say choose carefully <laughs> and set your goals before you go to the conference. Yeah. Of course. I, I also think, and I think Francesco can agree here with me, is that uh, a lot of these events and conferences serve as, a, as an excuse and a meeting ground to meet other people, especially, for example, for us in advocacy. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of, for example, YouTubers or a lot of developer advocates, they tend to use these conferences maybe not just to learn, but also just to meet and network together. And I think kind of the networking aspect here is also quite important because uh, then you get a lot of really cool connections and then you can therefore, you know, chat tech and you know share your ideas of others uh, so it's also kind of like a like a hub for for that community to build and and for to meet fellow folks that uh, are interested in the same thing but of course like all of you said you know you got to pick the right conference you can't pick just a random one and go to it because you might be uh pleasantly surprised that it's uh that it's not what you want um so yeah i think there are also other things that you can get from conferences like uh one of our employees uh started dating uh, a girl he met <laughs> in a conference. I don't know how common that is, but it seems to be a plausible thing that uh, uh, that you can get, uh, that you can uh, uh, obtain or kind of uh, enjoy from uh, do doing that conference. Um, and I think also going to party conferences can also be all right, but you need to come with the right mindset. You shouldn't come with the mindset of, uh, oh, I'll be doing a lot of professional work. You can come with the mindset of, I'll be building a lot of relationships. And I think you need to be the right type of person also, as yeah. I said at the beginning. You need to yeah. be the right type of developer. If you're a developer that enjoys, like you're a little bit of an uh, extrovert as, as an, and not a, too much of an introvert, um, you can make some great friends. And these can maybe down the road help your career as well. Is, isn't uh, isn't uh, conferences also another place to collect a bunch of swag and a lot of people go there to, to, to get that? <laughs> I swear that's a thing, right? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think anyone goes to conferences in for the purpose of swag, but yeah, when yeah. people get there, they it's like they turn into kids. Ooh, they're giving free bouncy balls. Oh, I have to get that. <laughs> or there's 
Oh, there's a coffee machine. Oh, I never had coffee in my life. I have to stand in line here and taste this coffee. Uh, or socks or like, and people sometimes, sometimes even like fight over it. And so, <laughs> it, and I think there's, it's kind of silly, but there's something beautiful about it. Like it enables, enables adults to go back to being kids. And I think, uh, yeah, um, it, it shows an innocent, a silly, but innocent and beautiful kind of thing that, uh, we all have an eternal, uh, child within us that just wants yeah. some free stuff. <laughs> Cool. Uh, that's uh, that's all awesome. And I think uh, they we're getting to the point where I think we should uh, get presented with our third fact for this uh, podcast episode. And Ooh. that fact is by Anand. Uh, take it away. So my fun fact uh, is uh, code generators are the fastest growing generative AI tools uh, today and will remain the same for, you know, next couple of years. Uh-huh. Um and it all started with, you know, I'd say OpenAI launch, you know, GPT, I'd say 3.5, not even 3, 3 was not even close to where we want. Uh, but, you know, inherently, you know, not all the programmers will agree with this, but inherently, you know, if you're a good programmer, you're lazy. You don't want to do the same thing again, 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 right? Uh, so all the developers, you know, typically when they code, what they do, what they used to do before, like, you know, generative AI is go search on Google. Like, you know, how do I do a certain thing? Because nobody wants to write bad code and they want to check how people are doing it, figure out, you know, what's the best way, learn about it and then code it. But, you know, the main problem was search for something. Uh You get somebody doing something similar, not exactly what you want. And you read it, you try to understand it, you spend time. So if you wanted to line like uh, you know write ten lines of code, you're spending yeah. like you know a couple of hours figuring out like you know how do I write it the best way. Now generative AI, you know, rather than basically searching for and then figuring out how to apply it to your problem, you ask the problem. Mm-hmm. It has already learned on a bunch of like you know so-called open source. Right, leave it there. I'm not going to go into like you know copyrights and all those things. But you know, you ask a question and you actually get a code for the problem that you have asked. So you're not basically looking at, you know, examples, trying to figure out, okay, he applied it here and this is how it works. And then now I have to write a piece of code. You directly get a code. So now it has simplified, you know, developer's life wherein rather than actually figuring out how to apply something by searching, you directly get an applied piece of code. That's great. But then the other issue with that is when you're working on something related to the organization that you're working for, they already have like a lot of run of code written, right? And generative AI gives you generic information, right? So now you have to take that piece of code, which works pretty nice, but yeah. it's generic, yeah. and then now figure out how do I make it work in my organization's code, right? Just an example. If I'm basically trying to connect to Google Cloud, using authentication service from Google, OAuth or whatever, and then trying to perform an operation, right? There might be already <laughs> a function within my piece of code which authenticates with Google, right? Now, generative AI to generate code, it's going to give me a code with authentication and everything. Now, if I directly take it and place it in my code, right. I have authentication implemented twice. One which was already existing, the other one, you know, is generated code. You don't want to do that. So now what happens is, although... It solves your searching problem. You have another problem. I take this code and now I'm spending time <laughs> modifying it to make it work the way my organization wants. Right? Another problem. So it did help you, but then it created a set of issues. Yeah. 
So now people are kind of looking at how do I generate the code but not like generic code based on what I've already written, right? And that is where, you know, these tools help because all these generative AI yeah. solutions out there, you know, have kind of short-term memory, right? Wherein, you know, you talk about token limits, the amount of input that you can give and so on. Now, if you want answers on your code, you need to basically tell AI, this is my authentication function. This is how do I do X. This is how I do Y. Knowing all of this, can you generate code for this particular problem that I'm trying to solve, right? Now, the thing is, if your code base is you, you can't fit in everything into that memory space, right? So you need something which will look at your code based on the question that you're asking. Try to figure out all the related functions, classes, methods, documentation, which are related to it. Yeah. And using that, provide some context to AI. And then basically say, how do I generate X? Okay. Although it sounds simple. It's tough because, you know, Code is not like English document, which is like, you know, I just take few lines. You need to basically take either a full function or at least take the function and summarize it and so on. So in in the, you know, cuts of it, very complex thing, but everybody needs it. And everybody like, you know, from Microsoft to Amazon to Replit, you know, even us, we are providing a solution. We are all trying to, you know, kind of tend to that particular problem. And then the other aspect, beautiful aspect to this is why generative AI is so good mm -hmm. is, you know, as, as the topic of this is command shift left, right? Try to move as much as possible before you actually check in, right? Or do stuff. So now, you know, which is very good for managers, right? Hey, security, we should just <laughs> shift left, right? Now the developer is like, I have to write this one line of code. I have to figure out what security right? Then somebody comes and says, you know what? Privacy is important. We should make sure that, you know, no PII data is stored right in the code shift left yeah now the developer is like shit now i have to basically do a bunch of more things right when do i write code uh so you know all of these things that you know people are trying to shift left right which you know relatively have a structured approach like if you're thinking about security you're going to look at dependencies you're going to look at like you know are you going to have memory overruns you're going to look at are you directly executing something rather than verifying it and stuff they're predefined, you know, like structured steps. And as you find security issues, people also tell you how to fix them. As those instructions are available, rather than, you know, a developer doing it, generative AI can take the piece of code that you've written, look at this set of rules, modify that code to enforce security, modify that code to enforce privacy. So in general, actually, leaving the developer to do what he wants to do and improve their performance. I have a question because... Um it's it's interesting that you raise this because I was actually thinking about this uh, a few days ago. And of course, we will see much more developers try to use this generative code feature to either implement some code in their company and so on. But obviously, the code has to understand you know, a larger context. Now, wouldn't it start being some kind of security vulnerability if you're going to start taking out your application code and putting it into the AI for it to understand? Because from what I what I read, and I don't know if I don't know if it's true or not, but this AI is constantly learning based on your input and based on the output. So surely, if you're giving sensitive code as the input to give the generic context of what you're doing to hopefully get the right solution. That surely is a security risk, right? And then if so, how are we going to combat this? Because I'm 100% sure that there is already developers that are doing this, even though they shouldn't. Um, so how, how do we overcome this? How do we battle this? Yeah. 
Yes, so there are different approaches provided today. Uh, like, you know, we all look at OpenAI, uh, you know, Google and other APIs which are available. And primarily, you know, if you're using these APIs, you know, not at an enterprise account level, right? By default, you know, it's like, hey, we will, you know, whatever you're giving us, you know, we are training our model on that. But if you're basically taking an enterprise account or, you know, most of these guys now have provided the mechanics to actually go at the account level and say, do not use my data for training, do not store my data, right? Now, some people may not be even comfortable with that. I'm like, great, you're giving me this option. How do I know? Right. I'm just signing a document, but does that document mm -hmm. mean that, you know, all my data is going to be safe, right? A lot of people are apprehensive about it. So now what has happened is there are companies which allow you to actually take open source models like Llama or you know, NeoGPT, yeah. deploy it in your environment. Right? Yeah. And then uh, train it, right? Uh, other thing that has happened is, you know, if you're looking at Azure or if you're looking at uh, AWS, AWS is bedrock. Uh, and uh, Microsoft also allows you to deploy models in your VPC. Okay. What happens is, you know, your training data, like the overall training data, global training data is kind of shared, but the inference engine, which actually takes your input and generates the output is running within your VPC. Any logs, any data, anything is within your VPC. That's not basically shared with like the common data. And a lot of mechanics, but again, Setting that up, knowing about it, and you know, getting it all working, you know, that's yeah, that's work in itself. But you know, there are mechanics to actually do that. Now, if you're using pure play APIs without all of this, yeah. then and without checking whether your data is being used for training, then that's a pure security risk. Yeah, and that's what most people are doing, right? They're using end-to-end uh, -end solved tools like uh, Copilot and uh, and uh, and the like where uh, it's not hosted on their VPC. It's like a, a big external solution and they have no idea where things are going. And we've already seen with, actually with Copilot, we saw some security incidents. So the Copilot basically reusing tokens that the, it's seen uh, from other people's code and basically sharing it with other people. Uh, they, they, they were wrong to put embedded into the code secret tokens in the first place. Yeah. But... Uh, Sharing it with other people only extravagated the the uh, the issue. Um, I definitely think we'll be seeing a lot more of this. Uh, I, and personally, as an engineer, I like the fact that I can delegate a lot of this annoying work to someone else that uh, doesn't suffer from it as much. Like throwing this on a junior engineer, both I would, like both with the junior engineer and with the AI, I'd be worried about the results. But with the junior <laughs> engineer, I'd also be worried about him suffering and not yeah. enjoying this and. Uh, losing his passion for the profession. Um, but another thing that uh, I think uh, we need to worry about here is where the profession or where the skill set of an engineer would balance to be. So it will be, it will still need engineers, but there will be a different kind of engineers. And I wonder if how much will we gain, how much will we lose? And I actually want to connect this to my fact at the beginning of the episode. So we described an engineer putting in a quick hack uh, that turned out to be something that revolutionized the space. Maybe if that engineer just delegated this to AI, we wouldn't have that sophisticated solution. The AI might not have, might not be able to be as creative as that engineer, and maybe we'll be losing something uh, to that effect. And then it's a question of how how we find the right balance point, and how do we start thinking of ourselves as engineers as 
the, these tools become more and more uh, commonplace. Yeah. You know, one thing out there is, you know, what I always say whenever using AI tools is don't be dependent on it. Because once you get dependent on it, you know, you lose coding skills. At the same point in time, people who have been able to use these generative AI tools have been always good developers. The reason for that being is they have a construct in their mind what they want to do, right? They're using these tools as assistants. That means, okay, I want to do this. Let me check, you know, what are the different ways or suggestions that, you know, I get. They look at the code, but they basically don't, you know, do something like ignore the human common sense, right? They look at the code, they see, you know, hey, the code is decent, you know, it does a bunch of things. So I can use most part of it, but there are certain things that I'm going to go and change, uh -huh. right? I think, you know, it's always going to be a combination of human knowledge plus AI because, you know, generative AI at the end of the day, even if, you know, people connect it to the web to get recent data, what it is doing is generating information or generating content based on the information that is known. Right? It does hallucinate. And hallucinate is like dreaming, which means it will come up with stuff which doesn't exist. Uh -huh. Like, you know, humans do, right? You know, you can discuss ideas and then you come up with something. Uh, which is, again, you know, great, but sometimes bad if people are like blindly taking the code and using it. But it's always like, you know, use it, but don't basically completely 100% depend on it. For sure. For sure. And kind of what I'm, what I'm thinking we're going to see, because obviously AI will just continue to grow. Now I can see companies like um, uh, OpenAI kind of growing to the point where we're going to be so dependent on AI and how much it can help us in the future that I, I can see, for example, OpenAI offering services and offering like an on-prem solution for companies where they can just own the whole of kind of the, the, the AI and then train it, like you said, even further. Yes. And that would be like a AI as a service or something. Uh, God knows what it's gonna, what we're going to come up with, but it feels like we're slowly going in that direction, and we're becoming more and more dependent on it, which is interesting. Um, yeah, and I'd say that you know, like, like you know, as they say, right, an engineer or an you know, an engineer can build a house, right, or bridge, but you know, you need an architect at the end of the day who's kind of yes. is what it should. So you yeah. cannot think humans out of the picture. Right? Yeah. It can generate anything, but to generate something, it needs to know what to generate, how to generate it, what are the constraints, right? Mm -hmm. It's where humans come in. And then the other thing is verification. We are not at a level that, you know, I can, like, you know, in some cases for simple things, I can directly take the output and use it. But in most of the cases, having man in the middle or humans is important. So as people say, you know, it's going to take away our job. I'm like, no, it's going to make you efficient, but it's going to make your job away. At least, you know, at this stage, it is right now. I think you can say it's going to take your job and just give you a job that is similar to the one you had now, is, but is now it's kind of different with more, yeah. well, AI colleagues that you need to play with. Our job was like Iron Man. I'm old enough that in the 90s, they were saying Google will, will get your, will steal your job. And like, it was <laughs> the 90s. But, <laughs> now it sounds funny, but like I've been hearing this uh, for 30 years. Google stole my job. I used to work as someone that you call for a list of websites. You give me a topic and I'll tell you where which URLs to actually input into your browser. And uh, I, I made millions and then I lost all it all to Google. <laughs> Initially to Alta Vista and then to and then to Google. But odd, we're in a better place right now, right? And more happy. Uh, I, I've recovered from the trauma. Would not be in the podcast today. So without it, yeah. <laughs> Before that, by the way, I worked as a DNS server, 
people would give me URLs, sorry, uh, host names, and I'd give them IP addresses. That that also didn't stick for long. <laughs> Sounds exhausting. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. So I think uh, now would be a good time to move to our last fact, and that one belongs to Philip. Philip, give us your best. So my fact for today and for this episode is that technological singularity could lead to an end of the human era. Now, this is kind of uh, interesting and it relates to the third point and to the first point that we've made. Uh, it's also based on AI. And there is a whole concept of singularity that exists. And essentially what that is, is the idea of rapid technological change. Now, what does that mean? Well, there was a, there was a mathematician once, his name was uh, Werner Vinge. And essentially what he believed is that this singularity concept uh, would represent and end the whole of human era. Now, there is a very famous futurist uh, and advocate uh, for the singularity concept. Uh, his name is Ray Kuzhvail. And essentially he made a prediction that by 2045, uh, singularity will occur. Well, what does that mean? Well, he believes that by that time, technological progression will be so rapid that we as humans uh, will in some way have to augment ourselves to be able to keep up with the technology and how fast it advances. So my question is, would you augment your brain uh, with technology if it meant you were able to keep up with the pace of the super intelligent AI? Or would you draw the line at some point? Yes, so in, 2000, uh, so in 2045, uh, I'll be 60 and I'll probably just go to the beach and relax. I have a good house there. So probably this is the future that it's really <laughs> for me. But maybe, now these jokes aside, but uh, um, let's say coming, coming back to more, uh, some more serious thing, we noticed this trend that like technology is, is always going faster. Like, uh, like we noticed it like in six months, in one year, we can change the whole ecosystem again and start and start over again. So I think that, uh, I don't think that it's too, it's too, it's easy to, to decide now in this podcast what will happen in the future. But I think that uh, the adaptability is one of the best skills that we might have today. I think it's even more important than just uh, coding or a very deep knowledge of, of a single language. So yes, it's a hard time because we are <laughs> we are more or less like we were like 5,000 years ago as humans, even 10,000, I think. So very similar. And so I don't know if we can keep it up, but it's, um, it's something that uh, I think that it will happen still a bit gradually. So like, like we have been doing it so far, like. So I, I want to hope that we still have uh, hope. So I don't think this is one of the biggest risks for humanity. I think there are way worse uh, risks for humanity rather than uh, this uh, improvement in tech that I hope that it will always be used for at least something good, like just coding faster and not something bad for humanity itself. So <laughs> this is my thought, but as I said, probably it will not be my biggest problem. So. I think, uh, first of all, uh, Francesco kind of uh, mentioned that we're, we've become accustomed to the fact that we're constantly seeing advances in technology. But for most of human history, that wasn't the situation. 
if you go to the Middle Ages, if you go to the Bronze Age, if you go to the hunter-gatherer times, if you, as a person, if you look back at your ancestors, several generations before, you'd see the same style of life. Things wouldn't change or they change very slowly. So in the end of the day, we're looking here at an exponential graph that is accelerating. We can see the curve. And initially, the changes as, as the curve starts are minuscule. So it feels like it's not changing. But then it picks up and it picks up very, very fast. The compounding effect is the kind of the scary thing here. The, ch the, the rate of the change and not the change itself, not the speed of the change, but the acceleration. Um, and I think uh, to your question, Philip, um, I don't think we'll actually, it's not actually a question for us because no one's going to ask us. Like, uh, that's that's also what happened in previous ages. And here I'm I'm kind of ripping off from uh, uh, Sapiens by uh, Yuval Noah Harari. Um, he has a uh, talks there about the art, uh, the agricultural revolution. In the agricultural revolution, humans decided to settle down and start growing some crop, rice or wheat. And uh, we talk about um, domesticating wheat, for example. But he asks, who was domesticated? The wheat continued to live. So domesticate comes from domus, which means house. So before the humans and the wheat lived in the, in the forest outside, and the person that moved into the house was the human. So the human was domesticated, not the wheat. And also at no point in time did any human stop and think, hmm, do we want to do this? Do we want to move into like cities and houses? Is that the uh, yeah. No, it just happened. And yeah. like go and you can't go back. Going back means killing people. Because you need the technology to support growth. And once you have that growth in place, it continues. And stopping that growth means killing the additional children that you had, because now you have no way to, of feeding them. So we're, it's not really a question for us. It's a question for maybe the AI, but probably a, a more bigger emergent force that we can't e even understand ourselves. But if you still, if I have to answer the question, my answer is goddamn yes. <laughs> I want to merge with technology and have all the awesomeness of a deity. Sure, sign me in. Yeah. And I, I kind of like, I, I'd basically, you know, also give an example similar to our, like, you know, uh, when I was in basically just out of college, you know, mobile phones were new. If you joined a company, you got a mobile phone, right? Like, or you had to rush to a landline to make a call, right? Now, everybody actually owns a cell phone. And my parents actually didn't know how to use, like, a cell phone. Like, and they were, like, you know, around 50, 60 years old. Now, they can chat. You know, it's like, anytime you have to call them, it's like, yeah, come on, let's do WhatsApp. So, you know, if you kind of see them morphed into, like, you know, they were people who used to go out. They even today meet, you know, their friends and so on. They're more like, you know, in-person people. But, you know, they have, over a period of time, started to use technology in ways that would help them. So, you know, I, you know, as, as the technology grows, you know, augmentation will become a necessity rather than an option. Yeah. Right. Because mm -hmm. think about it, like today we have this, you know, AR glasses, right? Which is like, you know, you can basically virtually sit anywhere, you know, get information about the things that you're seeing, connect with people. It's like, you know, I'd say a better cell phone, but, you know, in front of your eyes. But, you know, things will change in the future. And if everybody, you know, even if like 20% people are using it and they are basically being more productive, have more information, can do more things, 
than people who don't have it would want to have it so you know that change is going to happen yeah you know but uh, and like you know when we talk about augmentation it's both like you know i'd say ai augmentation and physical augmentation right uh we are already doing space mining one way or the other by sending like you know space probes and trying to you know dig up like asteroids there's a lot of out of metal out there we are basically eating up earth in one fashion or the other by mining so you know you're going to kind of look outside and you know we are initially going to start with like robots you can't send humans everywhere right you don't know they are dangerous places you need something to pull it right so all of these advancements that you know would lead to some form of augmentation right we are talking about like ai augmentation of chip right inside the brain at some point in time versus you know you know using like armors uh to actually like you know rather than say fighting and stuff like you know even physically disabled people who are not able to walk mm-hmm. if, you know you have like a armor you know exoskeleton yeah. so it's going to happen but you know i'd say i i am worried about the timeline i think it might take a bit longer than that right <laughs> you know i worry about being 100% dependent on it right we need we need to make sure that we don't lose humanity right yeah and i think uh as we kind of talk about dependency uh to wrap up this podcast i'd like to kind of leave a question for all the listeners and the question is what would happen if we suddenly rather than advancing in technology we would take it all away uh so that's uh that's a, something that you can think about and how uh, people would start to behave uh anand and francesco uh, thank you so much for joining us in this podcast we really appreciate your time thank you uh, it was a pleasure speaking to you and to all the audience we'll see you in the next episode bye bye Bye-bye. everyone I think this is the perfect time to wrap up the show. If you liked this podcast, tell your friends about it. If you didn't like it, tell your enemies about it. Hey, it's Philip. There is a few little things I quickly want to add. If you enjoy Command Shift Left, make sure you leave us a rating on the platform you are streaming from. We will be eternally grateful. If you are not doing so already, make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn by typing in at JustShiftLeft, all one word, for any updates and new episode releases. Finally, this podcast is fully supported by Permit.io, of which me and Orr work at, so make sure you go ahead and check out Permit if you need a simple solution to implement authorization. That's all, and we will see you in the next episode.